Chapter 3, Sections 1 and 2 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 3, The Joint Government of the Princeps and Senate, Sections 1 and 2. Section 1 political position of the princeps, the people. In the last chapter it was shown how Augustus established the Principate, and we became acquainted with the constitutional theory of this new phase of the Roman Republic, which was really a disguised monarchy. We also learned the titles and insignia, which were the outward marks of the ambiguous position of the monarch who affected to be a private citizen. It remains now to examine more closely his political powers, and see how the government of the state was divided between the princeps and the senate according to the system of Augustus. The proconsular imperium of the emperor differed from that of the ordinary proconsul in three ways. Firstly, the entire army stood under the direct command of the emperor. Secondly, his imperium was not limited, except in the case of Augustus himself, to a special period. It was given for life and thirdly, it not only extended directly over a far larger space, the emperor's province, including a multitude of important provinces, than that of an ordinary proconsul, but being maius or superior above that of all others, it could be applied in the senatorial provinces which they governed, and thus it really extended over the whole empire. As a consequence of his exclusive military command, it devolved upon the emperor exclusively to pay the troops, to appoint officers, to release soldiers from service. The soldiers took the military oath of obedience to him. He alone possessed the right of levying troops, and anyone who levied troops without an imperial command committed an act of treason. He granted all military honors except triumphs and the triumphal ornaments. Moreover, while an ordinary proconsul lost his imperium on leaving his district, the emperor lived in Rome without surrendering the imperium, although Rome and Italy were accepted from its operation. The emperor possessed also supreme command at sea, and had the Praetorian guards, formed of Italian volunteers, at his disposal, as a stationary garrison in Rome. In connection with the proconsular power is the sovereign right which the emperor possessed for making war and peace. But this was probably conferred upon Augustus by a special enactment, and was afterwards one of the prerogatives defined by the Lex de Imperial. The rights which the princeps derived from the Tribunician power, as such, were as follows. 1. He had the right to preside on the bench of the tribunes of the people. 2. He had the right of intercession, which he often practiced against decrees of the Senate. 3. He possessed the Tribunician coercitio. His person was inviolable and not only an injury, but any indignity in act or speech offered to him was punishable. 4. He had also the right to interfere with the prevention of abuses, and to protect the oppressed. 5. It is possible that his power to initiate legislation may partly come under this head. Besides these powers springing from the Tribunician potestas, the princeps possessed, as we have seen, other prerogatives defined by the Lex de Imperio. Although the sovereign people was now represented by a princeps, 
it had still some political duties to perform itself. The popular assemblies still met, elected magistrates, and made laws. The following points are to be observed. 1. Augustus formally deprived the people of the judicial powers which had belonged to it. 2. The Comitia Tributa continued to be a legislative assembly, and the right of making laws was never formally taken away from it. But by indirect means, as will presently be explained, legislation almost entirely passed into the hands of the emperor, and under the reign of Tiberius, laws were not made by the Comitia. For a long time, however, the form of conferring the Tribunician power in an assembly of the people was maintained. The assembly for this purpose was called Comitia Tribunicix Potestatis. 3. The election of magistrates was the most important function of the popular assemblies under Augustus. Constitutionally, the councils and praetors were elected in the comitia of the centuries, while the tribunes, aediles, and quaestors were chosen in the comitia of the tribes. But after the foundation of the empire, the distinction between the comitia centuriata and the comitia tributa seems to have disappeared and it is only safe to speak generally of an assembly of the people. The chief function of the Comitia Curiata had been to pass Legis de Imperio, and there was room for it to exercise its powers on the five or six occasions on which the proconsular imperium was conferred on Augustus. But it is not clear whether on these occasions an assembly of the people was consulted at all, much less whether, if so, the assembly took the special form of a curiate assembly. But whatever may have been the theory, and however tenderly republican forms were preserved by Augustus, the people practically lost all its political power. And this was quite right. In ancient times, before the introduction of representative government, popular assemblies worked very well for governing a town and a small surrounding territory, but were quite unsuitable for directing or deciding the policy of a great empire. Moreover, with extended franchise, it was impossible that all those who were entitled to vote in the assemblies could avail themselves of the privilege, and as a matter of fact, the comitia in the later republic were chiefly attended by the worst and least responsible voters, and were often the scenes of riot and bloodshed. Section 2. The Princeps and Senate The government of the empire was divided between the emperor and the senate, and the position of the Senate was a very important one. Augustus made some changes in its constitution. The number of the Senate had been raised by Julius Caesar to 900. Augustus reduced it again to 600. He also fixed the property qualification for senators at 1 million sesterces, about 8,000 pounds. Those who had held the office of quaestor had, as under the Republic, the right of admission to the order, and the age was definitely fixed at twenty-five. The senatorial classes were still determined by official rank, councillors, praetorians, etc. Thus the constitution of the senate formally depended on the people, as the people elected the magistrates. The influence of the emperor, however, was exerted in two ways. One, the emperor was able to influence the election of magistrates in the popular assembly, and two, he could assume the powers of censor and perform electio senatus. Augustus purified the senate on several occasions. The censor, or he who possessed the censorial power under the principate, 
always after 22 BC, though not necessarily, the princeps himself with or without a colleague, could not only place by adlectio a non-senator in the senate, but could assign him a place in a rank higher than the lowest. In fact, adlection among the quaestorians, the lowest class, was uncommon. Adlection either into the tribunician or into the praetorian class was the rule. Adlection into the highest rank of all, the consulares, was practiced by Caesar the dictator, but not by Caesar the first princeps, or any of his successors up to the third century. When it became usual, as it did before the death of Augustus, to elect half-yearly instead of annual councils, the influence which the emperor could exert on the elections gave him much of the power which Caesar the dictator exerted by adlectio interconsulares. A list of the senate was made up every year. The emperor also exerted a great influence on the constitution of the senate in another way. Admission into the senate in the ordinary course depended on the quaestorship, and the quaestorship depended on the vigintivirate. The rule was that only those who belonged to the senatorial rank could be candidates for the vigintivirate. Here, adlection could not come in. But the emperor assumed the right of admitting as candidates for the vigintivirate persons outside the senatorial class by bestowing upon them the latus clavus. Thus a young knight, not born of a senatorial family, might, by the emperor's favor, enter on a senatorial career and become a member of the senate. The poet Ovid, who by birth belonged to the equestrian order, is a well-known example. The emperor seems to have had the power of granting a dispensation which allowed persons who had not been vigintivori to become quaestors. It should be observed that in the senatorial career, cursus honorium, military service, generally for a year in one legion, was necessary. The usual steps were, one, vigintivirate, two, military tribunate, three, quaestorship, four, aedileship or tribunate, five, praetorship, six, consulate. Hence the vigintivoral offices were called by Ovid the first offices of tender age. The princeps was himself not only a senator, but the prince of the senate. His name stood first on the list of senators, and he possessed the right of voting first. He did not, however, adopt princeps senatus as one of his titles, as it was his policy rather to distinguish himself from than to identify himself with the senate. Special clauses of the Lex de Imperio conferred upon him further rights in regard to the transactions of that body. He had the rights of summoning the senate, a right which he might have claimed by virtue of the tribunician power itself, and of introducing bills, relatio, either orally, or in the case of his absence, by writing, the proposal being couched in the form of an oratio, or literae, ad senatum. His tribunician power gave him the right, as we have already seen, of cancelling senatus consulta. The reports of the transactions in the Curia were always laid before Augustus when he was not present himself, and he appointed a special officer as his representative to see that the reports were drawn up in full and nothing important omitted. This officer was called curator actorum, or ab actus senatus. Augustus introduced the practice of forming senatorial committees to consult beforehand, in conjunction with himself, on measures which were to come before the Senate. They consisted of one magistrate from each college, and fifteen senators chosen by lot every six months, 
and formed a sort of cabinet council. In the last year of his life, when, owing to his weakness and advanced age, he could no longer appear in the Curia, a small senate was empowered to meet in his house and pass resolutions in the name of the whole senate. This body consisted of his son, his two grandsons, the councils in office and the councils designate, twenty senators chosen for a year, and other senators whom the emperor himself selected for each sitting. This political concilium was no part of the constitution, and was in fact, under the early principate, only adopted by Augustus himself and his successor Tiberius. It must be carefully distinguished from the judicial concilium, which will be mentioned below. It has been already mentioned that the joint rule of the empire by the emperor and the senate is sometimes called a diarchy. It was a diarchy that might at any moment become openly, as it was virtually, a monarchy. For the emperor possessed the actual power through his control of the army, and if he had chosen to exert force, he might have destroyed the political existence of the senate. But the change of the diarchy into a monarchy was wrought gradually, and was partly due to the incompetence of the senate, which invited the interference of the sovereigns. The Maius Imperium was changed by degrees into the direct rule of those provinces which were not part of the emperor's proconsular province. But Augustus was thoroughly in earnest in giving to the Senate a distinct political position and substantial powers. He carefully abstained from interfering in the provinces which were not within his imperium. He was a man of compromise, and the constitution which he framed was intended to be a compromise between the democratic monarchy, which as the son of Julius he really represented, and the aristocracy. He was anxious to wipe out the memory of the civil wars, and to have it forgotten that he had been the champion of the democracy. While he continued to bear the name of the divine Julius, he seems not to have cared to dwell on the acts of the great dictator, and it has often been noticed how rarely the poets of the Augustan age celebrate the praises of Julius Caesar. We may safely say that no statesman has ever surpassed Augustus in the art of withholding from political facts their right names. There are many points in the Augustan system which are not plain in their constitutional bearings, but the general lines are clear enough. The careful balancing between the rights and duties of the two political powers produced some artificial arrangements which could not last, and which were soon altered, either formally or tacitly, at the expense of the Senate. But the main principle of the system founded by Augustus, the fiction of the independent and coordinate government of the Senate, was not entirely abandoned for three centuries. The division of the labors and privileges of government between the Senate and the Emperor may be considered under five heads, administration, jurisdiction, election of magistrates, legislation, and finances. 1. Most of the administrative functions which the Senate discharged under the Republic, especially in its later period, did not belong to that body by constitutional right, but were acquired at the expense of the supreme magistrates, to whom they truly belonged. Many of these powers were confirmed to it under the empire. a. The powers which the Senate had exercised in the sphere of religion, such as the suppression of foreign or profane rights, it continued to exercise in the imperial period. b. The rights of making war and peace, and negotiating with foreign powers, were taken away from the Senate, 
but in unimportant cases the emperor sometimes referred foreign embassies to that body. C. The authority of the Senate in the affairs of Italy continued unimpaired. D. The affairs of Rome were at first entirely under the management of the Senate, but the incompetent administration of that body soon demanded the intervention of the emperor. E. The provinces were divided into imperial and senatorial, and the administration of the latter was in the hands of the Senate. But the emperor had certain powers in the senatorial provinces, as will be explained in a later chapter. On the other hand, the Senate had a small hold on the imperial provinces, except Egypt, insofar as the emperor appointed only senators as his governors. 2. The Senate, as the council of the chief magistrates, sometimes exercised judicial functions under the Republic, as, for example, in the case of the Bacchic Orgies, 186 B.C. But such cases were only exceptional. Augustus made the Senate a permanent court of justice, in which the council acted as the presiding judge. This court could try all criminal cases, but in practice only important causes in which people of high rank were involved, or in which no specific law was applicable, came before it. The emperor could influence this court in two ways. One, he was himself a member of it, and two, by the right of intercession, which he possessed in virtue of his tribunician power. Besides the court of the council, in which the senate acted as jury, there was the court of the emperor. He could pass judgment without a jury, though he generally called in the aid of assessors, who were called his concilium, a distinct body from the political concilium mentioned above. Every case might come before his court as before that of the senate, but practically he only tried cases of political importance, or in which persons of high position were involved. It lay in the nature of things that in these two new courts only special and important cases were tried. Ordinary processes in Roman Italy were decided, as in former days, by the ordinary courts of the praetors, questionis perpetuae, who still continued to exercise their judicial functions. But senators were now entirely excluded from the bench of Eudices, who appear to have been nominated by the emperor. In the provinces, justice was administered by the governors, but they had no jurisdiction over Roman citizens, unless it was specially delegated to them by the emperor. Roman citizens could always appeal from the provincial courts to the higher courts at Rome. The appellatio of the princeps seems to have been made legal by a measure of 30 B.C. On the principle of the division of power between senate and princeps, appeals from the decrees of the governors of senatorial provinces should have been exclusively directed to the Senate. But on the strength of his Imperium Maius, the Emperor often received appeals from senatorial as well as from imperial provinces. Appeal could only be made against the sentence of an official to whom the judicial power had been delegated. It could not be made directly against a jury. But it could be made against the decree of the magistrate which appointed the jury. 3. Under Augustus, the Senate had no voice in the election of magistrates. The emperor was himself able to control the elections of the comitia in two ways. One, he had the right to test the qualification of the candidates and conduct the proceedings of the election. This right regularly belonged to the councils. But when Augustus set aside the consulate for the tribunician power in 23 BC, it seems that he reserved this right by some special clause. 
he was thus able to publish a list of candidates, and so nominate those whom he wished to be elected. He used only to nominate as many as there were vacancies. 2. He had the right of commendation, commendatio or suffragatio, that is, he could name certain persons as suitable to fill certain offices, and these candidates recommended by the emperor, candidati principis, were returned as a matter of course. The highest office, however, the consulate, was accepted from the right of commendation. 4. In regard to legislation, the Senate was theoretically in a better position under the Empire than under the Republic. Originally and strictly, it had no power of legislation whatever. The decisions of the Senate, embodied in the Senatus Consulta, did not constitutionally become law until they were approved and passed by an assembly of the people. But practically, they came to have legal force. The confirmation of the people came to be a mere form, and sometimes the form was omitted. It is possible that it was omitted in the case of the decree which conferred the imperium on Augustus. Under Augustus, the Senate became a legislative body, and in this respect took the place of the assembly of the people. From it and in its name issued the laws, Senatus Consulta, which the emperors wished to enact, just as the laws, leges, proposed by the republican magistrates were made by the people. The Senate alone had the power of passing laws to dispense from the operation of other laws, and the emperor himself, who was bound by the laws like any other citizen, had to resort to it for this purpose. For example, in 24 B.C., a senatus consultum freed Augustus from the Cincian law which fixed a maximum for donations. The special exception of particular persons from the law which defined a least age for holding the magistracies was at first a prerogative of the senate, but the princeps gradually usurped it. To the senate also belonged exclusively the right of decreeing a triumph, of consecrating or condemning the princeps after death, and of licensing collegia. The princeps had no direct right to make laws, more than a council or a tribune. Like these magistrates, he had by virtue of his tribunician power the right to propose or introduce a law at the comitia for the people to pass. But this form of initiating legislation was little used, and was entirely given up by the successor of Augustus. It would seem that it did not harmonize with the monarchical essence of the principate. It placed the princeps on a level with the other magistrates, and perhaps it recognized too openly the sovereign right of the people, which, in point of fact, the emperor had usurped. But formally the princeps had no right to make laws himself, and thus Augustus as princeps was less powerful than Caesar as triumvir. But the restraint was evaded in several ways, and as a matter of fact the emperor was the lawgiver. By special enactments, he was authorized to grant to both corporations and individuals rights which were properly only conferred by the comitia. It was the princeps who founded colonies and gave them Roman citizenship. It was he who bestowed upon a subject community the dignity of Ius Latinum, or a Latin community to full Roman citizenship. It was quite logical that these powers should be transferred to the princeps in his capacity of imperator, as sovereign over the provinces and dispenser of peace and war and maker of treaties. He also used to define the local statutes for a new colony. He had the right to grant Roman citizenship to soldiers at all events, perhaps also to others. 
apart from these leges dete, which were properly committial laws, the most important mode of imperial legislation was by constitutions, which did not require the assistance of either senate or comitia. These imperial measures took the form either of, one, edicts, which as a magistrate the princeps was specially empowered to issue, or of two, acta, decreta or epistole, decisions and regulations of the emperor which primarily applied only to special cases, but were generalized and adopted as universally binding laws. The validity of the imperial acta was recognized in a special clause of the Lex de Imperio, and the oath taken by senators and magistrates included a recognition of their validity. But their validity ceased on the death of the princeps, and this fact illustrates the important constitutional difference between the principate and monarchy. 5. The financial system of the state was modified by the division of the government between the emperor and the senate. There were now two treasuries instead of one. The old aerarium Saturni was retained by the senate. Under the republic, the aerarium was under the charge of the quaestors, but by Augustus the duty was transferred to two praetors, 23 B.C., praetores aerarii. The emperor's treasury was called the fiscus, and from it he had to defray the costs of the provincial administration, the maintenance of the army and fleets, the corn supply, etc. It is to be observed that provincial territory in the imperial provinces was now regarded as the property, not of the state, but of the emperor, and therefore the proceeds derived from the land taxes went into the fiscus. From a strictly legal point of view, the fiscus was as much the private property of the emperor as the personal property which he inherited, patrimonium, or acquired as a private citizen, res privata. But at first the latter was kept apart from the fiscus, which belonged to him in his political capacity. His personal property, however, soon became looked upon not indeed as fiscal, but as in a certain sense imperial, crown property as we should say, and devolving by right on his successor. The expenses which the aerarium was called upon to defray under the principate were chiefly, one, public religious worship, two, public festivals, three, maintenance of public buildings, four, occasional erection of new buildings, and five, construction of public roads in Rome and Italy, to which, however, the fisc also contributed. Indeed, it is impossible to distinguish accurately the division between the two treasuries. In the senatorial provinces, the taxes were at first collected on the farming system, which had prevailed under the Republic, but this system was abandoned before long, and finally the collection of the taxes in the senatorial as well as the imperial provinces was conducted by imperial officers. But the tendency was to consign the duty of collecting the taxes to the communities themselves, and in later times this became the system universally. In the arrangements for minting money, also, a division was made by Augustus between the emperor and senate. At first, 27 B.C., both senate and emperor could issue gold and silver coinage at the expense of the aerarium and the imperial treasury, respectively. Copper coinage ceased altogether for a time. But when copper was again issued about twelve years later, a new arrangement was made. The princeps reserved for himself exclusively the coining of gold and silver, and gave the coining of copper exclusively to the senate. This was an advantage for the senate, and a serious limit on the power of the princeps. 
for the exchange value of the copper always exceeded the value of the metal, and thus the Senate had the power, which the princeps did not possess, of issuing an unlimited quantity of credit money. In later times we shall see that the emperors could not resist the temptation of depreciating the value of silver, and thus assuming the same privilege. One of the most important functions of the Senate, under the emperors, was that it served as an organ of publication, and kept the public in communication with the government. The emperor could communicate to the Senate important events at home or abroad, and though these communications were not formally public, they reached the public ear. It was usual for a new princeps on his accession to lay before the Senate a program of his intended policy, and this was of course designed for the benefit of a much larger audience than that assembled in the Curia. End of chapter 3, sections 1 and 2. Recording by Tricia G.